Well, it's good to see you guys. Good morning again. Welcome to Community Church. Happy Sunday to you. It's always great to be here with you, to see those smiling faces, to hear all those kids laughing. Man, what a joy that was this morning in worship. It's good to liven things up every once in a while. I know that. That was, that was great. But it was, it's been great this morning to spend time with some of you in prayer as well and to spend time with all of you in worship and just sort of as we fix our hearts and as we fix our minds on Christ Jesus our Lord. And it's great to, to celebrate communion with you as well and just a special time of worship. I hope you've had a great week. But more importantly, I hope that you've had a Christ-centered week. We're going to talk about that because as believers, we want to keep Christ at the very center of our life. And so we're going to be talking about division today from Luke chapter 11. And so we're going to see just how important it really is to keep Christ at the center of our home, to keep Christ at the center of our marriage, and to keep Christ at the center of our work life, and so on. And of course, all of that starts with having Christ at the center of my life, right? I mean, Christ must be the king of my heart in order for him to be the king of my home. And so a Christ-centered culture starts with Christ as king. This week, I was listening to a podcast, uh, and it was two pastors having a conversation about culture. And specifically, they were talking about how do we create a gospel-centered culture within the church, right? And one of them defined culture like this. He said, culture is the collection of unspoken norms and the practiced values of a particular place. I thought that was a pretty good definition of culture. I, I like that as a definition. In fact, these were two pastors in California, but they brought up St. Louis in regard to culture. One of them said, hey, let's take St. Louis, for example, as an example of culture. He said, the culture in St. Louis is all about what? Do you have a guess? The Cardinals. <laughs> That's what they said. The culture in St. Louis is all about the Cardinals. He's right. St. Louis is a baseball city, okay? And so you, you don't have to talk very long to convince me of that, right? I fit in well with this kind of culture as a lifelong Cardinals fan. I'm all in. In fact, I'm like, you know what? St. Louis is not just a baseball city. It's the best baseball city in the entire world, right? So a culture like that is not hard for me to fit into. But what about community church? What is the culture of our church? What are the unspoken norms here? What values do we practice? Things like that. How gospel-centered are we? I mean, how Christ-centered is community church? I would say that would be a great question to ask a visitor. You know, maybe someone who has come in and from the outside observed a little bit. What do you see? What matters to community church? Well, I have some thoughts on that. I would say in view of our recent teachings, the last three weeks previous to this one, we've been talking a lot about prayer. So I would say that we hope to have a culture of prayer here at Community Church. We also meet at 9.15 in the mornings before our service so in order to pray. So we want to have a culture of prayer here. I would say in light of our outreach events that we've had over the course of the last year, uh, one of the elements of culture here at Community Church that we want to have is about evangelism. We want to reach our community. I would say in view of our community groups, we have one in Union and one in Sullivan that you know gives us an opportunity to grow a little bit deeper in the Word and take what we've learned and discuss those things. I would say because of that, we hope to build a culture of discipleship at Community Church as well. And in view of the ministries that happen right here on Sunday mornings all around, from the live stream to the PowerPoint to children's ministry to hospitality, greeting, security, on and on and on, in light of all of those ministries that are already happening here, I would say we hope to build a culture of service at Community Church. And I would say that in view of our teaching that we do here on Sunday mornings and then again in our community groups, that we hope to build a culture of Bible literacy and a love for the Word of God. Uh, in light of our teaching. So all that to say this, we do hope to build a gospel culture here at Community Church. And in order for any culture to thrive, and more importantly, honor God, then it must not be divided. It must be united on these things, right? And it must be united under the authority of Christ and His Word. Because as we're going to learn today, kingdoms and cities and homes will all crumble when they become divided. 
And usually division happens from within. I mean, when civility is replaced by civil war, you know what's going to happen. Houses and cities and kingdoms will fall. So this morning, we're going to see how the gospel can keep that from happening. Okay, Because when a culture is centered around Christ, when all of those within that culture are subject to his word, then it's going to flourish, not fall. Okay, but when it's divided, as Jesus said here in our passage today, then it's going to be brought to desolation. And this is true in kingdoms across the world, cities all over the world, homes all over the place, including our city, our home, our church. Okay, we're included in this. So we've got to be very, very careful. I like what the Apostle Paul said. He gives this charge to believers over in Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you to walk worthy of the calling with which you were called, with all lowliness and gentleness, with long suffering, bearing with one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There's one body, one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope of your calling. He says, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, which is to say one true Lord, one true faith, and one true baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Amen. What's he saying? So all of us with the Spirit of Christ within us are called to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And that's because a Christ-centered culture will bring unity, not division. So that's what we're shooting for this morning. So let's have a word of prayer here and we'll get into our text. We love you, Lord, and thank you again for this time around your word, uh, for already blessing us with a beautiful time of prayer and worship and fellowship. And now as we enter into your word, please fix our hearts on Christ. Help us, Lord, to hear from your spirit this morning. Not from me, Lord, but to hear from you this morning, the truth that's in your word. Please sink it deep into our hearts and change us to conform us into the likeness of Christ. For it's in his name we pray. Amen. So Luke chapter 11, starting in verse 14, says, And he was casting out a demon, and it was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke, and the multitudes marveled. But some of them said, He casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. Others, testing him, sought from him a sign from heaven. But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation, and a house divided against a house falls. If Satan also is divided against himself, how will his kingdom stand? Because you say, I cast out demons by Beelzebub. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Verse 20. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. But when a stronger than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. And it happened, as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the womb that bore you, and the breasts which nursed you. But he said, More than that, blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. All right, so if you'd like to do further study in your own time with this passage, you can look at the comparison passages over in Matthew chapter 12, verses 22 through 30. And then down in verses 43 through 45, you can also see it in Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 27. So all three synoptic gospel writers include this account here that we just read today, um, except only Luke records the response at the end from the woman, okay, who pronounced a blessing there in the passages at the end. So one of the things we want to continue to keep in mind here in Luke's narrative is that it's not centered around chronology, okay? It's centered around Christ. And so it's possible, it's 
very possible that this event could have taken place around the time when Christ's family came to visit him. And we already studied that back in Luke chapter 8. Okay, so that's when this could have taken place. Mark at least puts it during that time. That's what Mark says in Mark 3.21. But Luke begins like this in Luke 11.14. He says, And he was casting out a demon, meaning Jesus was, and he was mute. So it was when the demon had gone out that the mute spoke and the multitude marveled. So Matthew gives us a little more information here and tells us that this mute person was a man. Okay, so it was a man. He was also blind as well as mute. That's Matthew 12, 22. And when Christ healed him, he both spoke and saw. So two healings. But we notice here that something about demons, rather, we notice that they can either speak through people. We've seen that back in Luke chapter 4, verses 33 and 34. Or they can do something else. They can keep people from speaking like we see here. Okay, but either way, we know that the power of Christ can cast out both. But let's think about that for a minute. Why would a demon cause someone to be mute? Why would they do that? I personally think, again, opinion, right? So I personally think that it's because our enemy doesn't need any more cheerleaders. He just needs to keep us quiet. He needs to keep us quiet. In other words, you don't have to join the occult, right? Or be possessed by a demon in order to do the work of the devil, Right? A Christian who never proclaims Christ is just as useful to the enemy as a demon-possessed man who is mute. Right? You see, as believers, we are to proclaim the gospel. We talked about proclamation in communion this morning as well. But we are to proclaim the gospel. We're to share the good news of Jesus Christ. We're to teach the word of God, and we are to make disciples of Christ. Okay, now I'm not saying that this man here in the text was a believer, because believers cannot be demon-possessed, right? But all of these activities here, proclaiming, sharing, teaching, making, all of that should be present in the life of believers in Jesus Christ. You see, Christianity is to advance the kingdom of Christ. And so those believers who are essentially mute in their witness for Christ, well, they're of no better benefit to the kingdom than a demon-possessed man who is mute. So all that to say, guys, there's no such thing as closet Christianity. Okay, that does not exist. It's not a thing. Believers are to make much of Jesus with their witness and with their words. So I should never be mute, right, in my witness because I've got too much to say. Now is not the time for me as a believer in Christ to be quiet. Now is the time for me to be courageous. Verse 15. But some of them said, he casts out demons by Beelzebub, the ruler of the demons. So, the words here at the beginning of this verse, some of them, that phrase would be in reference to the Pharisees. Okay, we're talking about Pharisees here, and that's according to Matthew 12, 24 as well. So some of these Pharisees, they had accused Jesus of actually being in partnership or being in fellowship with Satan. <laughs> that's a pretty bold accusation, isn't it? But of course, what communion has light with darkness? 2 Corinthians 6.14. So it's easy for us to see what camp these Pharisees were in, right? Because the light shines in the darkness and the darkness did not comprehend it. That's John 1.5. So their accusation here, the Pharisees' accusation was not only false, it was false, but it was also very ignorant. They did not comprehend, okay? But the word Beelzebub here, you might be wondering what that means. That literally means Lord of the Flies. That's what that word means. And it was one of the names of a false god of Ekron. You can read back in 2 Kings chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, if you'd like to do a further study on that. But the name came from a false god of, uh, that was in Ekron, a false god of Baal called Baal Zebub. Okay, again, that's 2 Kings chapter 1. But another spelling of that, and your translation may spell it like this, would be Beelzebul. So drop the B at the end and put an L there. Right, It's in one way in some translations and in another way in other translations. But that's interesting because what that does is it completely changes the meaning of the word. If you take the B off the end and, and it's no longer Beelzebub, now it's Beelzebul, that changes the meaning from Lord of the Flies to Lord of the Dwelling. And that's very interesting. Okay, because I think that that might be what Christ is actually playing off of here in his illustration of the kingdom and the house that we're going to read about in verses 18 through 26, right? Because we know that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, 
right? John 1.14. So, of course, I think maybe Christ is pointing out, I am the true Lord of the dwelling. But as we see here, this miracle couldn't be denied for sure. It, so it had to be misrepresented by the Pharisees. They couldn't deny it, so they misrepresented it. It had to be explained away by false accusation and so on. And actually, this is very common, right? We still see this all the time today. Uh, when an opposition has no substantive argument, so to speak, then it often just results to slander, okay? That kind of argument is called ad hominem. It's a to-the-man argument. It attacks the person rather than the argument, okay? And so it doesn't deal with the truth or the substance of the argument. It just attacks the person. It appeals to emotion rather than logic or reason. And so these Pharisees, they saw the miracle, so they know that it couldn't be denied. So instead, what they did is they attacked the one who performed the miracle to discredit him, right? Again, it's an age-old tactic. I mean, they can't refute uh, the argument. So when you get in this situation where someone can't really debate an argument, they can't refute what you're saying, they can't refute a truth, then a lot of times people will just refute the person making the argument. They'll ad hominem. They'll attack the person that's making the argument instead, okay? And so what we're seeing here is that spiritual blindness, it leads people to actually defy logic. That's one of the things that spiritual blindness does. The idea that Christ is in cahoots with Satan or that Satan would cast out Satan, think about that. On its face, it's nonsensical. Okay, it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. But again, we see this kind of argument all over the place today in the what many people are calling the woke culture movement of our day, right? We see it. Men are supposed to be women. Women can be men, or they can be neither, or they can be whatever they want to be. It's nonsensical. It's just like me standing up here and telling you guys, I'm six foot four and good looking. You guys, nobody would believe that. Why? Because it doesn't make any sense. It's obviously and verifiably not true. Okay? But our current culture wants us to believe that up is down and that left is right and that things are whatever we say they are. But of course, that's a complete denial of reality. It denies common sense and logic. And so just like the claim is here, Satan casting out Satan and his own demon, that, that's nonsense. But again, spiritual blindness is the absolute worst form of blindness. Okay, Because what it does is it exchanges the truth for a lie. And I would refer you to Romans chapter 1 for a further study on that. But in reality, these Pharisees who were falsely accusing Christ here, were, they were actually more blind than the blind and mute man that Christ healed. Verse 16, others testing him sought from him a sign from heaven. Now, isn't it funny how those who accused Christ of working on behalf of Satan are actually the ones doing the devil's work here? What I mean is this, the word of God clearly says you shall not tempt the Lord your God, right? That's Deuteronomy 6, 16. And of course, that was the exact verse that Jesus quoted in the wilderness to Satan himself. We studied that in Luke 4, 12. And furthermore, what kind of sign did these people think they just saw? You see, Satan will confuse the mind of everyone who chooses to reject Christ, even to the point that they feel emboldened enough to tempt God themselves. Do you see how warped a person can get when they reject Christ? Guys, I'm here to tell you, satanic delusion is a real thing. It's a real thing, and we do see it all throughout our culture even today. I want you to listen to a verse from Zechariah chapter 10, verse 2. He says this, For the idols speak delusion. That's how he starts off that sentence. And man, you could preach on just that. For the idols speak delusion. The diviners envision lies and tell false dreams. They comfort in vain. Therefore, the people wind their way like sheep. They are in trouble because there is no shepherd. Wow. Guys, the word for idol that Zechariah uses in that verse literally means family idol. That's what that word means. Interesting. This is the kind of idol that they would set in their household and use it as a shrine for worship. That's what he's referring to here. Just let that sink in for a minute. Families follow idols, Zechariah said, because they have no shepherd. Right? So I've got to ask myself, who is shepherding my family? 
Who is calling the shots in my family? Do I let my job do that for me? Do I let comfort do that for me? Maybe I let my kids call the shots. Maybe I let the world around me do that. What is it that determines my daily schedule and my priorities? When I find it, there's my idol. Right? Don't get confused about this delusional culture that we live in. Don't let them determine your priorities for you. Okay? Especially as a believer in Jesus Christ. Look, you have a shepherd. His name is Jesus Christ. So let's follow him. All right, so Christ, he's going to first respond to these false accusations here, which is that he cast out demons by the power of Satan. Okay, we kind of talked about that, but then he's going to go on to address this current generation here, their obsession with signs, and that's in verse 29. We won't get there this week. We'll probably start covering that uh, next week or the week after. But Luke writes this in verse 17. He says, But he, knowing their thoughts, said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is brought to desolation. And a house divided against a house falls. Now, notice here that Christ was not duped by these people. He knew their thoughts. Okay, Not only did he know their thoughts, he knew something about their thoughts. Listen to this from Psalm 94.11. It says, The Lord knows the thoughts of man, and here's what he knows about them, that they are futile. That's right. The word futile means useless. That's what that word means. And so Christ is about to give these guys something very useful to think about here. Okay, he's going to use basic logic to destroy the Pharisees' argument and their false accusations against him. I mean, any kingdom, any kingdom that fights against itself is going to fall. That's just logical, isn't it? Any house that fights against itself will also fall. Again, pure logic here. Because kingdoms must have kings to lead them. And houses must have husbands or men to lead them, ideally, from a biblical standpoint, right? And so here's the deal. When things get out of whack, things tend to get all out of sorts and out of whack when kingdoms and houses and cities get outside of God's order. That's when everything starts to go south and get divisive, right? And according to Jesus here, division will necessarily result in desolation, meaning ruin, Okay, so kingdoms fall when rebellion rises up in the ranks and houses fall the exact same way. When families refuse to follow God's design for the home, they will fall. Remember, Zechariah said, the people wind their way. That word wind means to pull out. So when people decide to pull out, it's like a sheep leaving the fold. When they pull out of God's design for them and His truth, etc., etc., They're in trouble because at that point they have no shepherd. You see, division comes from this delusion that says, my way is better than God's way. That's delusional. Because God's way by its very nature is truth, and truth by its very nature is absolute, right? And so therefore, when I go my own way, apart from God's design for my life, apart from his truth, then I've now made truth something other than absolute. I've made it relative. That's a problem. Because now my word can mean just as much as God's word when truth is relative. And at that point, anything goes. So all I'm saying is don't go there, believer. Okay, don't go there. Let the word of God stand. Christ is the king of his kingdom. Christ is the head and the shepherd of his church, and he has given men, he has given husbands to be the under shepherds in their homes. And when we submit to God's perfect order, then guess what? There's going to be unity there. There's going to be unity. It's only when we get out of order and we start sort of, you know, when the tail wags the dog kind of a thing. That's when we see problems. That's when we experience division that will ultimately lead to destruction. Now, obviously, a lot more could be said here in regard to biblical family structure and, and all of those things, leadership, responsibility, submission, and so on. We don't have time to get into that this morning. Um, go study Ephesians 5 if you'd like to do a further study on that, and, and maybe sometime we will. But the overarching point here is this. When kingdoms and cities and homes are operating within God's designed order, there's going to be peace. Okay, we know that. But when we get out of order with God's design for these institutions, then we're going to experience division. And that's also a truth. Verse 18, if Satan also is divided against himself, 
How will his kingdom stand? Because you say I cast out demons by Beelzebub. Now, of course, Satan would never undermine himself. He would never undermine his authority, what he has uh, over people. He would never undermine that because a civil war would never, ever be in his best interest. However, one of the things we know he does is he divides so that he can conquer. Okay? I mean, if he can get a child of God to just follow him a little bit outside the fold, to pull out, like Zechariah said, get outside of the will of God, get outside of God's order, then he can divide that kingdom. He can divide that house. Sin is divisive. Sin is what divides. Sin separates us from God. But Christ congregates, right? He brings unity within the body. So if there's divisiveness in the kingdom, if there's divisiveness in the church, if there's uh, divisiveness in the home, there is sin, right? And we need to root out that sin. We need to confess it and get rid of it. Verse 19. And if I cast out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. All right. So here we see that the argument that was put forth by the Pharisees was also very self-defeating. It was a self-defeating argument because if Christ was in fact casting out demons by the power of Satan, then so were their own Jewish sons of that day. Right? So it's self-defeating. Who are these people? Who are these sons of the Jews or Jewish sons? Well, I think it could be one of two different people or both, really. Uh, I'll let you decide on that. But he could be referring to the Jewish exorcists that were alive and practicing during that time. Uh, that was a real thing. And so that's one of, one of the options, I guess. But I think he could possibly be referring to guys like Peter, James, and John here. Um, they were Jewish sons as well. And they had chosen to follow Christ. They had cast out demons. Uh, so either, either one or both of those options, I, I suppose, is a possibility. But the idea here of what Christ is teaching us is that what applies to one applies to all. Okay, so if you're going to accuse me, then you've got to accuse your own brethren of doing the same thing. And the Pharisees weren't about to do that. Okay, they were, they were not going to do that. So the reality that Christ is pointing out here is that darkness cannot cast out darkness. Only light can do that. Okay, and then he gets even more descriptive in verse 20. Look at that. But if I cast out demons with the finger of God, surely the kingdom of God has come upon you. So notice that Christ is casting out demons by the finger of God. Fingers are attached to hands. Hands are attached to arms. Arms are attached to bodies. Right. What's Jesus saying here? He's telling these people, I'm God. I am God and I am greater than Satan. Some of your sons may do the right thing and call upon God to relieve people of their demon possession, but I use my finger. <laughs> I'm God. Now, Matthew records Jesus as saying that I cast out demons by the Spirit of God. That's Matthew 12, 28. So we can deduce here that the Spirit of God is the same thing as the finger of God, right? In Christ's explanation here. Okay, both examples point to his deity. Why? Because he possesses them both. He possesses both the Spirit of God and the finger of God. Which, by the way, what did Christ tell his disciples that they should be praying for? We studied this in the previous verses. He told them to be praying for the Holy Spirit, didn't he? So the kingdom of God was upon them, Jesus said here, in the sense that Jesus was their king who possessed the Spirit of God. Why? Because He is God and could therefore give them the Spirit of God, right? Or cast out the evil spirits with His own finger and so on. And now He was right there in their presence. So the kingdom of God truly was upon them, not in them. Okay, don't misunderstand. It wasn't in them. It was upon them. And Christ is going to illustrate this in the next two verses. Verse 21. When a strong man, fully armed, guards his own palace, his goods are in peace. So the strong man here in this parable that's fully armed is Satan. Okay, But notice how those without Christ can feel this sort of false sense of security. Did you see that in there? I mean, they think their goods are in peace, right? Why would they think that? Well, it's because that's where their focus is. Their focus is on their possessions. They want their goods, the things they possess, to be in peace, right? 
the property needs to be in good condition, but they don't consider the condition of their soul. They'll get all armored up to protect their palace from outside intruders and so forth, but they won't put on the armor of God to protect the family that's inside the home. Again, those who are spiritually blind get this exactly backwards. Okay, and that's because their focus is on their goods and not on their God. Verse 22. But when a stronger man than he comes upon him and overcomes him, he takes from him all his armor in which he trusted and divides his spoils. So, of course, Christ is the stronger man here. Um, the power of Satan is strong, but the power of Christ is stronger. But notice here in the story that Christ has come upon his enemy when he was strong. Okay, didn't take Satan by surprise necessarily or when he was at his weakest point. No, he came upon him when he was strong. I mean, thousands upon thousands of years have passed now since that first sin in the garden. Okay, and Satan's influence in this world had only grown stronger and stronger year after year, right? Listen to what Paul said in Galatians chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. He says, Even so we, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. Amen and praise the Lord. In the fullness of time, after thousands of years of Satan becoming stronger and stronger, Christ came upon him and overcame him. Right? Christ has the power over the enemy of your soul. He is stronger. Right? And Christ took away all of Satan's armor, all of that armor that protected our enemy by overcoming all of those temptations in the wilderness that we studied about and by crushing his head at his cross. Therefore, Christ took away even Satan's power to tempt. Okay, don't misunderstand what I'm saying. Of course, he still tempts, right? But it's powerless to the believer because Christ has overcome, right? He made a way of escape for every time that we're tempted, according to 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13. So guys, the truth is, as a believer in Jesus Christ, I no longer have to succumb to the tempting of the tempter. I don't have to. Satan has lost his power over me as a believer in Jesus Christ. Listen to how Paul describes what Christ did to the power of the enemy. It's in Colossians chapter 2, verse 15. He says, having disarmed principalities and powers. He, meaning Christ, made a public spectacle of them. How great is that? Triumph, triumphing over them in it, meaning in his cross. And so Satan is utterly powerless against the power of Christ because Christ has completely disarmed the devil and conquered his house, right? Guys, Christ brings unity to the kingdom. Christ brings unity to the home. That's the result of his victory at the cross. It's unity, it's reconciliation, it's restoration. And those who choose to side with the stronger man, Jesus Christ, rather than the strong man, Satan, will have the privilege of enjoying that victory with him. Verse 23, He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Okay, so we learn a very important truth here. It's very important. There is no such thing as neutral on the spiritual battlefield. Two men are at war here in this story. There's a strong man and there's a stronger man. Satan is the strong man. Christ is the stronger man. But both of them are calling for our allegiance. And so each and every one of us are in the fight. Okay, not... Not even one of us are stuck over on the sidelines, right? We're all getting in the, in the game. We've all got playing time here. And according to Jesus, we're either gathering or we're scattering. We're doing one of those two things. In other words, we're either doing things Christ's way or doing things Satan's way, right? There's no middle ground here, okay? I mean, even the great 70s band Rush, do you remember that band? They got it right. They had a song, and one of their lines in that song, it said, if you choose not to decide you still have made a choice. Hey, they got it right. I mean, if Getty Lee and Neil Peart can get it, surely we can get that down, right? There is no neutral. There is no middle ground. So where do I stand? That's the question. 
right? Do I stand against Christ in his word or am I standing with Christ in submission to his word? That's how we know where we stand, by the way. Am I living in submission to this book, to God's word? That will tell me where I stand. What kind of spirit, what kind of attitude is the prevailing attitude in my home? Is it divisive? Is my home divided? Now, I'm not talking about little arguments here and there. Okay, I'm not talking about, you know, a little intense fellowship from time to time, right? We all have that. Okay, I'm talking about, is my home divided on the things of Christ and on the teachings of Christ? Is that where we're divided? You see, to gather is to bring unity to the home. We gather up every area of our life and we put it all under the authority of Jesus Christ and his word. But to scatter is to have things my way, under my authority, do things the way I want to do them, right? At least that's one of several ways we could look at this passage by way of application, okay? There's many other ways you could interpret that in terms of application. But that's one important way we should think about it. Do you remember the guy that was casting out demons in Jesus' name back in Luke 9? We studied that. John, one of Christ's disciples, got bent about that. He was upset because that guy wasn't following them. But according to Jesus, that guy was actually gathering. Christ said, don't forbid him, for he who is not against us is on our side, right? So you see, we're not talking about uniformity here. We're talking about unity. And specifically, unity under the authority of Christ. It's not about being the same, for Jesus. It's about living in submission to Christ. That's what we're talking about here. Verse 24. When an unclean spirit goes out of a man, he goes through dry places, seeking rest and finding none. He says, I will return to my house from which I came. Now, this is apparently a reality in the realm of the demonic. Okay, demons will leave, they will seek rest, they will find none, and then they're going to return to the one that they previously inhabited if it remains empty. Okay, hang on to that thought. We'll talk more about that in a minute. But the application for us is like this. This is basically akin to somebody who's just turning over a new leaf. Okay, someone who's just trying to get a fresh start on life or make a few changes in their life that they hope is going to benefit them and maybe bring them a little happiness. Okay, but as we can see, this is only temporary relief here. Okay, these efforts to self-improve are only temporary. It's kind of like that diet that we all go on in the first of the year, right? I mean, in spite of our best efforts, after a while, like five or ten minutes even, <laughs> to be good, we always, always indulge and blow it. I say we, I should say me. But the reality here in verse 24, guys, this is a picture of neutrality. That's what this is. This is a picture of a person who doesn't want to follow Satan, doesn't really want to follow Jesus either. Okay? They think it's neutral. They think they are neutral. But of course, Christ is going to teach us that that's not even a possibility. And we see this in a larger context as well in the nation of Israel. Let's look at them as an example. Because at one time, they suffered from this demon of idolatry, so to speak. They had idol worship. Well, their Babylonian captivity brought them back to God. That's one of the things that it did. However, what they did was they only swept the house up because ultimately they rejected their Messiah. Okay? In other words, they didn't ask. They didn't seek. They didn't knock for the Holy Spirit of God. So the house was swept, but it was still empty. Okay? In other words, God was not in it. Verse 25. And when he comes, he finds it swept and put in order. All right. That's great. Good deal. The house is swept. But what did Jesus say? Look at verse 13 in Luke 11. How much more will your heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? You see, in the story here that Christ is teaching us, when the demon returns, he doesn't find God there. He doesn't find holiness there. He just finds that the housekeeper's been there. That's it. But what did Jesus say? Again, let's keep all of this teaching in context. Jesus said in Luke eleven ten, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. So guys, his point is this. Some people would rather sweep than surrender. This is reformation. 
This is trying to get clean before you get in the shower. This is religion. This is cleaning the outside of the cup, but not cleaning the inside of the cup. When what's needed is regeneration. We must be made new. We must be changed from the inside out. Our hearts don't need a good sweeping. They need a deep cleaning. Okay? And Christ is going to address this in detail at the end of the chapter. And so I'll hold further comment until we get there. Verse 26. Then he goes and takes with him seven other spirits more wicked than himself, and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that man is worse than the first. Okay, so they didn't receive the Holy Spirit. They just swept up around the place. But the heart of man has to be filled with something because each and every one of us have a spiritual need that must be met. And so the truth is, those who don't make room for Christ are only making room for more evil. And now as this relates to Israel, one day during the tribulation, it's going to be worse than it ever has been for them. Okay, as Christ said, the last state will be worse than the first. In John chapter 5, verse 43, Jesus addresses this. He says, I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him. So Israel's house had been swept of idolatry, but they did not receive Christ. They rejected him. And so the house remains empty. And therefore, during the tribulation, idolatry is going to return again to the nation. That demon's going to return, so to speak, but this time stronger than ever in the form of the Antichrist. And they receive him, which is going to result in their corruption being worse than it was before, right? So even today, even today, the house of Israel remains swept with religion. Clean on the outside, dirty on the inside, right? They are void of a relationship with their Messiah. But of course, this analogy is true for all of us, right? Who simply just try to sweep up around the house rather than submit to the cleansing of Christ. This applies to our life as well because our own effort, efforts are not sufficient to save. Not whatsoever. And when we reject Christ, then that leads us into sin after sin after sin. And we just try to keep up with a house that we're not ever going to fully get clean. That's what this is saying because it's divided between my will and God's will. So what we're learning here is that, guys, we need restoration. Man, we need restoration more than we need reformation. Reformation is just like arranging the deck chairs on the Titanic, right? You've heard that analogy. Looks great, but guess what? The ship's still going to sink. That's reformation. We need salvation. That's what we need. We need to be rescued, not reformed. We need to be restored and renewed just sweeping up around the house that's divided about christ is nothing more than pushing dirt around right we got to put down the broom and call serve pro man we got a fire up in here there's a flood something's going on and i can't handle it i need jesus that's where we're at i need to fall on my face before christ in repentance and let him restore me and make me new verse 27 and it happened as he spoke these things, that a certain woman from the crowd raised her voice and said to him, Blessed is the woman that bore you, and the breasts which nursed you. So the Pharisees, they blasphemed, but this woman, she blessed. That's quite a contrast. But if you notice, her blessing was misplaced, right? I mean, Mary might be blessed among women, but Christ is blessed above all creation. Right? So let's be careful here not to elevate Mary beyond her rightful place. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5 says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. So, that's right, Jesus, not Mary. Verse 28. But he said more than that, Blessed are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Amen. I like what Matthew Henry said here. He said that Christ led this woman to a higher consideration. And as Jesus said in Luke chapter 8, verse 18, Take heed how you hear. For whoever has, to him more will be given, and whoever does not have, even what he seems to have will be taken from him. That's right. Because those who respond in faith to the light that they've been given will be given more light. Please hear the word of God this morning. We've got to be careful how we hear the word of God. Look, your relationship with Jesus Christ is greater. 
It's the greatest relationship that you have. It's greater than any other relationship that you have, including family relationships. All of the other relationships should take a back seat to your relationship with Christ. I like what Dr. Ironside said. He said, it's not the will of God that we should put the mother in the place of the son. And he's right. So what he's ultimately saying is the spiritual is greater than the physical. Okay, why? Well, it's because the flesh only looks out for itself. Right? It's going to grab a broom and start sweeping up. That's what the flesh will do. But the spirit looks after the things of Christ. It will say, I'm never going to get this place clean. I need Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 37, He who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. So you could say that if I'm wavering between these relationships here, then I'm actually dividing the kingdom. Right? Because if I claim to belong to Christ and I claim to believe his word, but my relationship with him is secondary to any other relationship that I have, then I'm divided. I'm no longer gathering. Now I am scattering. If you don't hear anything else this morning, hear this. Guys, in reality, a kingdom divided or a house divided is really a heart that is divided. That's what it is. We need a relationship with Christ that is authentic, that's not fake, that's not some sort of facade. Christ is saying it's far more important to keep the word of God than it is to try to keep up your house the way you want it, right? No, here's the deal. I need to let Christ fill my heart. I need to let Christ fill my home. And in order to do that, I've got to let go of my wants. I've got to turn from my sin. I've got to let go of my will to have it my way. In other words, I need to stop sweeping. I'm never going to get the place clean. I've got to call on Christ to cleanse my soul, to fill me with his Holy Spirit. Ask, seek, knock, so that I can start living my life according to his will and according to his words. You see, Christians, we are subjects in his kingdom. Christ is the king. We're just managers of the home. He's the one that owns it, right? And Jesus said, blessed are those who hear God's word and keep it. That's what he said. So here's the deal. One more thing and we're done. Disobedience divides the home. Disobedience is what makes kingdoms and churches and homes crumble. So let's decide today that we're going to follow Jesus, that we're going to submit to the authority of his word in our life. Let's not let his word fall on deaf ears this morning. right? Let's pray that we can have ears to hear. Let's pray for hearts that have enough courage to obey. Oswald Chambers said, neutrality in religion is always cowardice. And I think he's right. Because following Christ is not for the cowards. Following Christ is for the courageous. So don't let your heart be divided today. Choose this morning right now to fully surrender your life to Christ and start serving him in the way that he calls you to serve and the way that he calls every Christian to serve. Lord, I don't want my heart to be divided anymore should be our cry. I don't want it to be divided over my will and yours. I submit to you. Would you unite my heart under the authority of your word? Lord, this morning, I surrender. Father, we love you and thank you for this time in your word. Thank you for this teaching that can be very difficult, that can be very convicting as well. And so, Lord, I just pray that I would heed your word this morning that I would be careful how I hear it, that I would hear it for the truth that it is, and that I would submit to it, that I wouldn't kick against it, that I wouldn't rebel against it, that I would receive it. I don't want to just sweep up around the house anymore. I don't want to try to do things my way anymore. I don't want to keep doing things that are only going to get things partially done or partially clean. I need to be wholly cleansed. I need Jesus. I need you to fill me, Lord. Sweep out every dark corner of my heart. Any pet sins, any desires that are not godly, Lord, please take them and have your way. 
I pray, Lord, for obedience in my life. I pray that when I hear the truth of your word, that I'll be quick to obey it and follow it. Blessed are those who hear your word and keep it. That's what you told us. I need help keeping it. So I pray that you would help me to do that. Help me to forsake all other relationships in favor of the relationship that I have with you, my King, my Master, my Savior, my Lord. Help me to get my will in line with yours, to surrender. My prayer this morning is that if someone's hearing this message and they have not surrendered their life to Christ, that they would do that even now. They would turn from their sin, repent, just turn. That's what that word means. Turn away from it and turn to Jesus Christ by faith alone for your salvation. Believing that he is the son of God who died on the cross for your sins and rose again the third day so that you could have hope of eternal life in him. Would you believe that? Would you put your faith and your trust in Jesus? For believers this morning, I pray for us that we could take that next step of faith, that we could take that next step of growth, that we would stop messing around with things we don't need to be messing around with and get serious with God. Lord, we surrender. You are our King. So we pray that you would have your way in each of our lives this morning, but also in the life of community church. We need a gospel-centered culture here. We need a Christ-centered culture here. We want to be a body of believers who we, we know we're not perfect, but we want to be authentic. We want to be able to share our hurts and our sins with one another so that we can get help and grow in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray that Community Church could be a hospital for the broken, that it could be a place where people come and find healing and restoration in Christ Jesus. Would you help us do that, Lord? It starts with surrender. We love you and thank you for this time together. I pray that you would have your way in the hearts of everyone here. It's in Jesus' name I ask it. Amen.